0: In his short essay, The Crowd is Untruth, Søren Kierkegaard stresses the importance, or if you like, the absolute centrality of what he calls the single individual as opposed to the crowd when it comes to truth of anything that really fundamentally matters, the truth of intellectual, spiritual, and religious matters, or as he's going to say later, the eternal truth. So not just truth in terms of how many pieces of chalk I have in my hand at the moment, which would be four if i tell you that there's five that's a falsity but four is a truth not those sort of trivial things but the truth that goes to the very core of things and also truth you could say in practical matters because he'll talk about how truth plays a role for example in our comportment towards our neighbors Now, why is it so important that truth be connected not to the crowd, but to the single or the particular individual, which seems kind of counterintuitive. It seems like instead we should say, well, truth is what everybody agrees upon or truth is what's objective in the sense that everybody going into the same circumstances gets the same result or the same answer has the same experience. Kierkegaard says, no, that's one of the dangers of the crowd. You make the crowd thereby, as he says, the court of last resort. You allow the crowd to rule. And if you do that, then truth ends up needing the crowd he talks in the beginning about two different views of life he says there is a view of life which holds that where the crowd is the truth is also so the crowd determines the truth that there is a need in truth itself that it must have the crowd on its side so that if something is put forward as truth unless it actually has the crowd or the many or however you want to talk about it agreeing with it ratifying it it's not really truth Kierkegaard says that's a mistaken point of view. Instead, he says there's another view of life, which holds that wherever the crowd is, there is untruth. And if every individual possessed the truth in private, if they came together in a crowd, untruth would at once be let in. So one of the dangers right off the bat is of losing our bearings, our point of view, and taking the crowd as being what is determinative of truth. Another set of problems that are associated with this that you can see as both moral and epistemological is that, as he says, within the crowd... As part of a crowd, an individual becomes unrepentant. They don't regret the things that they do, that they know are wrong, or the things that they say that they know are false, poorly researched, not well thought out, not well expressed, maybe even just fabricated on the spot. They also become irresponsible they're not responsible to themselves. They're not responsible to anybody else in the crowd. In so far as it's a crowd, they may be responsible in some sense to a leader within the crowd, but the leader can tell them that everything that they're doing is A-okay and they could believe it. And within a crowd, the individual feels him or herself have a diminished responsibility. If there's 30 people, I've only got 1 30th the, re- the responsibility for overturning somebody's car and setting it on fire, or for spreading a bunch of malicious rumors about somebody else, or giving this person the prize instead of the other person who's more deserving. I don't feel myself to be as responsible because we all did it together. Right, So that's another danger and that's a kind of untruth on a practical level that Kierkegaard wants to signal. The other thing that he says that's really fascinating is he talks about a, a play between cowardice and courage. He says that a crowd is an abstraction. It does not have hands. Each single individual normally has two hands. And when he is a single individual, lays two hands on somebody, it is the two hands of this single individual, not after all his neighbors, even less the crowd. But the individual doesn't have the courage to do this by himself. He says, The untruth is that the crowd actually had the courage for it since there never was even at the most cowardly of all single individuals so cowardly as the crowd always is. Every single individual who escapes into the crowd and flees in cowardice from being a single individual, it takes courage to be a single individual, to be accountable, to be responsible, to say this is my action, not somebody else's. They contribute, he says, their share of cowardice to the crowd. And then the crowd itself behaves in a way that seems to be courageous. It takes on dangers. It faces challenges. It attacks people who might otherwise not be able to be taken on by the individuals themselves. But it's not really courage. It's sort of a cowardice raised to a higher level. And being part of that is one of the risks of merging oneself into the crowd forgetting that oneself is a single individual. Now, what's the more positive aspect of this? So again, remind ourselves that we're talking about intellectual, spiritual, religious matters, Kierkegaard says, or the eternal truth. We cannot appeal to the crowd. In this case, we have to have some other way of making sense of it. And here he talks about the single individual as being the one for whom there is truth. There are so many things within the realm of the spiritual and the religious, but also in terms of the intellectual, where something is required of us and And we have to make our own decision about it. We can't just take somebody else's say-so because we're all part of this organization or we're all part of this culture or we're all part of whatever joining thing you're going to talk about, whatever club you're going to call, in this case, the crowd. You have to decide for yourself. In a way, Kierkegaard is taking the Enlightenment and going even further, right? Dare to think. Dare to think to figure things out for yourself. Don't just simply rely on everybody else. Don't canvass the crowd to see what your opinions ought to be. So that's one very important aspect of this. He talks about the truth as being something that has to be communicated by a single individual. Now, does that mean that you couldn't, like, say, have a printing press or something like that? Of course not. Kierkegaard himself is writing things out. And and we read what he has to say either in print form or in digital form in one way or another. But he is communicating as a single individual, saying, these are my thoughts. I take responsibility for them. And he communicates, he says, truth has to be communicated to a single individual Now, does that mean that he would have to, you know, parcel everything up and here's a book for you and here's a book for you and here's a book for you? No, of course, we could have one book in the library that we all read and it could be the truth of St. Anselm or Aristotle or Marcus Aurelius or whoever you like, but we have to appropriate it as single individuals. Not just as people moved by some sort of trend. Oh, Stoicism is hot right now. I'll start reading Marcus and buying into what he has to say. Oh, Stoicism is not hot anymore. Epicureanism. I'll read Lucretius. No, that can't be our approach to things. We have to be responsible, he thinks, if we're really going to be taking on intellectual, spiritual, religious truths. We have to be responsible as individuals taking them on. Now, he also tells us that, and this is a little bit more tricky to make sense of, he says that the truth has to be communicated and received with God as what he calls the middle term. So what does he mean by that? He says the truth can neither be communicated nor received without being, as it were, before the eyes of God. Does that mean that you have to be in a church? No. But that means that you have to be holding yourself accountable to something, to something bigger than yourself, to something transcendent, something that thinks that truth really matters. And further, going beyond that, Kierkegaard uses the Christian notion of God not only being true, not only being interested in truth, but being truth itself, here to talk about that relation. So he says that, The truth can neither be communicated nor received without God's help, nor without God being involved as the middle term, since he is the truth. So when we're appropriating truth, we're in a way appropriating God. We're also being helped by the truth to understand truth. And you might say, well, that's a really weird way to talk. However, if you look through the history of Christian thinkers, some of whom aren't identifiable as existentialists and aren't talking about the crowd or anything like that, you will find this as a motif. St. Anselm speaks in this way, and he probably got it from St. Augustine, who also talks in this way during dialogues, the teacher will say to the student, great example of somebody who is communicating the truth as a single individual to a single individual. And we're looking on as a third single individual. They say, well, maybe the truth itself will help us to find the truth about this, this and this, or the truth itself will help us to find the truth about the truth. So Kierkegaard is actually saying something kind of traditional within Christian thought in saying that and the other consideration to bring in truth is not merely speculative or theoretical or cognitive there is also an affective and even more important cognitive that is having to do with our strivings and our desires and a practical aspect to it so he talks about love of neighbor and you might say well what does that have to do with anything well he says to honor every individual human being, unconditionally, every human being, that is the truth and fear of God and love of the neighbor. To recognize the crowd as the court of last resort in relation to the truth, that's to deny God and cannot possibly be to love the neighbor. And then he goes on and he says, the neighbor is the absolutely true expression for human equality. If everyone in truth loves the neighbor as himself, then would perfect human equality be unconditionally attained? Everyone who in truth loves the neighbor expresses unconditional human equality. So this is a particularly important point. It may seem in taking the crowd into account that we're being humane. We're loving our neighbor. We're taking everybody who matters into account. But insofar as we're treating them as a crowd, we're not. Because one of the things that the neighbor actually needs is a truthful relation to the neighbor. It may be that sometimes what you have to do with the neighbor is take them aside and say, hey, man, you're screwing up telling them the truth about that. Not simply going with whatever the majority has to say or trying to keep things nice and even because we all have to be part of one big cohesive group. It may also be love of neighbor requiring sacrifices on our part to help the neighbor. But all of that is an expression of what Kierkegaard here is calling truth. And this is where unconditional human equality becomes a genuine possibility, at least as far as we can bring it about, according to Kierkegaard. The last thing that I want to say about this, that Kierkegaard highlights in this is that one of the things that we can often forget is that a crowd is composed of single individuals. So he says, because of that, it must be in everyone's power to become what he is, a single individual. No one is prevented from being a single individual, no one, unless he prevents himself by becoming many. To become a crowd, to gather a crowd around oneself, to make the crowd central is to lose one's own individuality or to use one's individuality to throw that very individuality away. But at every point, there's still the bare possibility that an individual could extricate him or herself from the crowd and look back at it and say, no, I'm not going to deal with that anymore and become responsible, become probably repentant and thereby to become what it is that he or she is and should be the single individual in relation to truth.